invite our, our final uh, panel of discussants to the, uh, the stage. Um, last year, uh, we sort of started a new tradition uh, at the Cato Surveillance Conference uh, by having a, a prominent uh, civil libertarian, in that case it was Kurt Opsel of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, have a, a sort of extended, not debate, but really dialogue with uh, an official from the intelligence community in this case. Uh, in that case, it was uh, Becky Richards of NSA, and we thought that uh, yielded such interesting results that, that uh, why, not, uh, why not essentially repeat the experiment, uh, see what happens when you get um, some, essentially two people who care deeply about privacy, uh, one, uh, to simplify, an external critic, one working within the intelligence community, um, and, and see what they think are the important issues as a day to talk about. Uh, and, of course, to introduce uh, our, our discussants and uh, moderate that conversation, we have another Cato Surveillance uh, uh, Conference uh, tradition of sorts. He's been, I think, at, at each of these since even before it was called the Surveillance Conference when we did our first um, post-Snowden uh, full-day conference on the National Security Agency. Uh, Pulitzer Prize winner uh, Charlie Savage, whose uh, uh, national security reporting for the New York Times is absolutely essential to understand uh, what's going on in the intelligence world, and whose book uh, Power Wars is uh, just an absolutely invaluable guide, the most thorough and comprehensive and thoughtful analysis of what uh, intelligence and security policy under uh, the Obama administration uh, has emerged uh, to be. Um, I will turn it over to Charlie's capable hands to introduce our panelists. Thank you, Julian. Can everyone hear me all right? Uh, so here we are at the end of this conference, and we're also three years, three and a half years now into the post-Snowden era. Uh, we've been living under the USA Freedom Act for 18 months now. We are heading into another reauthorization year for the FISA Amendments Act. And it's sort of a, it's a great time to, to wrap up the day and uh, the year to some extent with a, an overview of where we are and where we might be going across three or four different uh, uh, cuts at the surveillance world. So that, to help me do that with you today, I have two great guests. One is Alex Joel to my right here. He's the chief of the Office of Civil Liberties, Privacy, and Transparency at the Office of Director of National Intelligence, ODNI. He's played that role since 2005 when the office was set up. And he's also the chief transparency officer. Uh, and after getting out of the, he began his career as a JAG attorney in the Army. After getting out of the military, he worked as a technology attorney in the private sector. And after 9-11, he decided to rejoin the government uh, in the CIA's Office of General Counsel before he moved to ODNI in 2005. And I think uh, we were talking in the green room before uh, we came out here. I asked Alex to tell me something about him that people in this room didn't know, something that wasn't just his resume item. And he told me, what is it you told me? I swim every single day. Every single day. How do you have time to swim a mile a day? Make, we have to wake up really early in the morning. How early do you get up? Um, around 5.30. So you've been up since 5.30. And where do you yes. swim? Um, a couple of different locations, primarily the Sport and Health Club in McLean. Mm -hmm. And why do you swim every day, every day? Well, it's good to stay in shape. I have found that um, uh, actually the secret to keeping swimming, I mean, the, the swimming is a tremendous exercise if we're going to have this conversation about swimming. Just a briefly, okay, a briefly. one word answer. The key <laughs> is uh, audiobooks. If you listen to, if you have an un, a waterproof iPod and listen while you're swimming, the laps just go by. And I understand also you're, you are the last person standing at ODNI who's been in that role the entire time? I think so. I right. haven't done a full audit, but I believe so. All right. 
So my other guest is Jennifer Granick. She is the Director of Civil Liberties at Stanford's Center for Internet and Society, teaches internet law at Stanford Law School. She also served as the Civil Liberties Director at the Electronic Front Frontier Foundation from 07 to 09, or 10, 2010, sorry. And you're also the author of a forthcoming book from Cambridge University Press. It's called American Spies, Modern Surveillance, Why You Should Care and What to Do About It, which sounds like this audience might be interested. When is that book coming out? Yeah, it's going to be out in the beginning of January, and it's a book about surveillance law and policy written for a general audience. So an effort to uh, both be understandable and accurate and give people kind of a framework for thinking about the surveillance policy debate um, with a definite civil liberties bent. All right. And when I asked you something about yourself, you told me you're an enthusiast for something called Tekken 5. <laughs> yes. What is Tekken 5? It's one of those hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat video games. And uh, in Japantown, San Francisco, there's a uh, video arcade that has only video games that have been imported directly from Japan. Mm -hmm. So my daughter really likes it because there is a character that's a kangaroo. So she's always the kangaroo, and then the kangaroo and I beat each other up. So I think it's really good therapy, probably, as well as a nice pastime. What character do you play? I just go around, you know. I try to, uh, but I can tell you that um, my other daughter was playing her, and uh, she got this one character. And my daughter said to her, you know, the, the women are always skimpily dressed in these things, and the men are, look really, you know, like demigods. And my uh, daughter beat the computer that was playing the ma you know, really masculine-looking guy. And my other daughter said to her, "You are so good. You beat that guy, and you're barely even wearing a shirt." <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right, so let's get into it. I think part of what this audience wants to be, to walk away from this conference with, of course, there's been deep dives into all kinds of different weeds, but one of the reasons we're able to do these deep dives in a way that we weren't before 2013, you can have an annual conference about surveillance and there's a lot to talk about, is because we know so much more about what the government is capable of doing, what the rules are for that, whether those rules are being obeyed and so forth, than we did before the Snowden leaks. How, from your vantage point, especially uh, as chief transparency officer, which is, a, I think, a role that didn't even exist before a year or two ago, you know, how, how has the ODNI and the CIA and the NSA changed in, in terms of its ability to or willingness to or seeing the value of talking to the public about what it does? Right. So um, I've been in a community which values secrecy and uh, we're sort of built for secrecy. We hire people based on, in part, based on their ability, our perception of their ability to uh, maintain the confidentiality of the information inside the government. Mm -hmm. We have secure facilities, secure systems. We do a lot of training <laughs> around uh, keeping secrets and that's important in our business because of course, as I've said in other contexts, a, a fully transparent intelligence service would be fully ineffective. So our effectiveness to a large degree depends on um, the people, the adversary, not knowing how it is that we're uh, uh, using different techniques and sources to uh, discover them and, and uh, detect their activities. Um, so when you come from that culture, it, 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 it's very difficult to sort of uh, get people thinking about being more open and public and transparent. And I've been doing this, as you pointed out, since 2005. And uh, never before have I experienced uh, a community that is as, as engaging with the public as we are now. We still have a ways to go. I think one of the lessons that, that certainly I learned and a lot of folks learned in the last three years is that you can have as much uh, oversight as you can, you can uh, design and put in place. We have all kinds of different oversight structures. It can be rather complicated. I've called it 
um, a system of many layers with many players. We have inspectors general, uh, lawyers, uh, my kinds of offices. We also have uh, oversight committees, and we have the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, um, the Intelligence Oversight Board. All of these entities are, have cleared personnel that can see information uh, in a classified environment, which is critical, I think, for our democracy, to have people who, have, who, who are in an oversight capacity to have the clearance to see the things that we're doing um, in a classified manner. Um, you can have these rules, you can have oversight, uh, and that's uh, necessary but not sufficient. I think one of the lessons that we've learned in the last three years is that you need to add an additional element, which is transparency. And it's not easy for the intelligence community to do it. It takes a lot of uh, time, effort, and attention. Um, but I believe that this is an enduring value that we have learned um, in the last three years. You have to find ways to be more open about what you do. Let me, let me follow up on that briefly. I, mean, I certainly, as a reporter who was covering these things and asking questions and filing Freedom of Information Act lawsuits and so forth, noticed that the NSA and really ODNI as the controlling entity for how the, the response to Snowden was gonna play out, became gradually more willing to just affirmatively say, this is what's going on, not to fight the FOIA case, but just say, okay, you can have the documents, just give us time to redact them. And I appreciated that very much. I'm not sure that that moment is going to endure the way you just suggested that it would. I certainly think other parts of the, uh, and correct me if you disagree, that other parts of the intelligence community that were not uh, forcibly exposed, like the surveillance world was, such as the Central Intelligence Agency, I think never went through that cultural change. Um, and I wonder, one of the things I've been thinking about lately is that the USA Freedom Act, one of its provisions was that the intelligence court, the FISA court, had to make public uh, when it has made oh, its novel and significant interpretations <laughs> of surveillance law. And the provision doesn't say going forward. It just, it's ambiguous. It just says the government shall make, shall make public these things. And so it has raised a question about whether FISA court opinions that are novel and significant that were enacted between 1979 and 2015 must also now be made public, at least in summarized form. The Obama administration has taken the position in court that no, it only uh, applies going forward. If, if this is a new culture of transparency, what's the justification or the rationale for not just saying, yes, if here was an important opinion from 1988, you can have it. Here's an important opinion from 2003, you can have it. So I think, uh, I, I won't get into the legal discussions uh, regarding the interpretation of that particular clause and in the context of whatever it, wherever it is that's being discussed at the moment, but I can just say more generally, it is our intent to go back and look at all the significant opinions. So that's something that is, uh, that is happening. Um, whether or not it's, it's, a, it's a statutory requirement, it is something that's in train right now. Um, uh, one, of the, one of the points that I was making uh, at a different uh, forum is, is when you look at transparency, there are, um, there are different reasons to, to provide information to the public. Some of those are in response to mandatory legal requirements. So you have, you mentioned the USA Freedom Act. So we must comply with the USA Freedom Act and that, that acts as a prioritization mechanism on what it is that we do. Another one is the Freedom of Information Act. And so especially once a Freedom of Information Act goes into litigation, you have to follow the, the course of that litigation. And um, there are gonna be court deadlines and court orders that you have to comply with. And then uh, under the executive order for classification uh, for national security information in the US government, there are various processes that also require us to review 
tranches of classified information. For example, the 25-year automatic review, there are classification challenges and mandatory declassification reviews that are filed under that particular executive order. So all of these um, external, what I call these hard requirements, these legal requirements, necessarily uh, drive uh, a lot of the machinery that has to be put in place to provide transparency, a lot of the classification reviews, which can be very painstaking. You have to go line by line across these documents to determine what can safely be released, and if there is a, a, a risk to national security, what that risk is, bring in the experts, um, et cetera. Part of what we're doing in the transparency world is, is not only looking at that uh, responding to those mandatory declassification and disclosure requirements, but also looking to be more proactive and to say, what is it that we can do to better explain ourselves to the public? You know, and in that regard, we have been engaging with uh, civil society, getting their ideas, getting their requests, trying to figure out what's in the public interest, what can, what can we do to better inform public discussion on important issues. And I don't think, I do think that's enduring, because I think that's, a, that's, that's something, no matter what agency you are, We've all experienced the last three years, we've all experienced the very uh, uh, significant and um, uh, vibrant <laughs> discussion and debate about the legitimacy of certain intelligence activities. And I think intelligence agencies have all gotten the message that we have to figure out a way to be more proactive and strategic going forward about the information we provide the public. All right, well, let me, let me turn to Jennifer then as we think about going forward. So the most significant event that we can see on the horizon for the world of surveillance is the uh, scheduled expiration of the FISA Amendments Act in the end of 2017. Of course, there's no expectation that it will not be renewed, but it is an opportunity for amendment and uh, extra provisions. Can, what are the sort of three big issues in takeaway form that people should watch for as that debate unfolds? Yeah, so, so one big issue, and directly in response to, to um, Alex's comments, is about um, you know, transparency, but, but I would put it a little more broadly, which is accountability, mm -hmm. right? And you know, I think that while the intelligence community has come a long way from where it once was, it has not come nearly far enough in terms of revealing information to the public. I mean, there are secret legal interpretations of very important key terms in intelligence law that the public doesn't really know what they mean or how they're being interpreted, and it, it, it hinders our ability to understand what kinds of surveillance are being conducted um, and whether we uh, support that kind of surveillance and whether the safeguards are, are adequate. So you, you see an opportunity in the FISA Amendments Act reauthorization bill to do what then to solve that problem? Um, so, you know, it, 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 it's, everything's up for a negotiation once the bill is going to expire, so it's going to be gone and we can ask for more things. So, um, releasing FISA court opinions. Particularly, I think people really want to know what the definition of some key surveillance terms are. What is facility? What does it mean to target? What is the interpretation of U.S. person? Um, what kinds of materials, importantly, does the government treat as protected by a reasonable expectation of privacy? Because all of the FISA electronic surveillance definitions depend upon collecting information there to which there's a reasonable expectation of privacy. And we have this ongoing debate about very sensitive personal private information where the public doesn't really know exactly how the government treats it and if they treat it as having an expectation of privacy or not. If there is no expectation of privacy, then either another statute has to protect it or it's not subject to FISA because it falls outside the definition of electronic surveillance. Okay, Here's so that's some an examples. Area, well, oh, go ahead. Yeah, just examples. Uh, email. 
we still don't really know 100% for sure that email is protected by the Fourth Amendment. Or what about documents that are stored in the cloud? Okay. So non-communication. So we got to know that. What we're talking that. about here is better uh, information that could come out about how the government understands its powers and then that could enable substantive change to the right. rules. What's a substantive change to the rule that reformers want specifically uh, that also could be part of this bill? Yeah, so I think there there's two big things that are uh, under discussion. One is scope and the other is usage. So scope, Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act allows uh, targeting a foreign or overseas for any foreign intelligence information. Mm-hmm. Without um, a warrant. Without a warrant. So warrantless surveillance for, for if any foreign intelligence purpose. And foreign intelligence is a very, very broad category, well beyond national security and, and counterterrorism to anything we might be interested in, in, in as a country. And so um, what that means is two things. Number one, it means that when Americans talk to foreigners who are of interest in these categories, our communications are wiretapped as well. Um, and it means that foreigners who, uh, who may be targets or who are talking about targets, they get picked up for this very broad category also. And that's caused an immense amount of international consternation as people realize that our law is collecting on them as targets without a warrant in this very broad way, well beyond what their national you know, laws would allow or human rights laws necessary and proportionate test for whether the surveillance meets the, the human rights standard. So oh, the scope- To be clear for people, this is, we're only talking about collection inside the United States here. So this is when the US government goes to Gmail or goes to AT&T and <laughs> wants to look out in the world based on facilities yeah. here. Of course, Either even if asking- that law didn't exist, the NSA is forever, been abroad also gathering up foreigners of foreign intelligence. Without FISA regulations. But this is where they go to US companies or are doing surveillance on the internet backbone and saying to these beloved brand names, give us information about your users. And there's the the economic problem is obvious, which is that people don't want to use companies that have to give over their information without a warrant to the US government. Um, But the the problem for US, for Americans is broad as well. We've learned that there's um, a vast amount of Americans' private information that ends up in these databases. So you would like to see the allowable scope of surveillance under this law be constrained in some way to what? what would, what's the delta between uh, how things are today? National security, Just counterterrorism. National, not economic sort of things. Right. You see that as politically possible? Um, I don't know. You know, I, I don't live here in DC. I live in San Francisco, so it's like a whole different world out there. Um, and I, I think that there's, you know, I, people tell me that uh, you know, there's less of a chance in some ways for surveillance reform now with the um, you know, Republicans in control of both houses of Congress. I find that in some ways hard to believe. I think now is really a time where um, people who are paying attention are thinking actually quite the opposite. This is a time to restrain uh, government discretion and to make sure that robust rules and checks and balances are in place you know, more than ever before. So I think so it the, is possible. The other theme you mentioned was usage. Yes. People hear a lot about the backdoor search loophole. Right. What is that and how does that intersect with this yeah. bill coming up? So once uh, information is collected um, under Section 702 from the companies, so under under this section that's expiring, from the companies. Without a warrant. That, that, without a warrant. That warrantless collection goes into a database and the FBI, which is a law enforcement and a domestic security 
agency has access to the raw data in that database. And what they are allowed to do is to search, they call it query because search is a constitutional term, is to search that database for information, including looking for information about Americans for criminal purposes. And this is called the backdoor search loophole because ordinarily in order to get access to that information you would have to go to a court, show probable cause, get a warrant, execute the warrant through the regular criminal procedures, give notice and all of that. But what's happening here is by creating this vast database of information of Americans' communications with foreigners, then you have this vast database that the FBI is allowed to go to and query. So the usage restriction would be um, either don't allow it at all um, we, are, we collected this information in the name of counterterrorism and national security. Use it in that name and don't you know, use an, do an end run around it. Or at the very least, you have to go to court and get a warrant and show that you have probable cause to look for this information as opposed to the way it is now, which the FBI can access it for assessments, which is basically uh, fact-free. All right, so let me turn back to Alex. Not to put you in a spot as a person, but as the government's you know, representative, can you articulate the rebuttal why has the government resisted the idea that if, an, at least in the criminal investigative world, if an FBI agent wants to look in this database to see if a criminal, ordinary criminal suspect's private messages have already been collected, uh, the government, the FBI agent ought to be getting a warrant before trying to pull that message up and read it? So I have to take a step back and kind of address this more broadly, I think. So first of all, um, um, I certainly agree with some of the points you were making about the uh, transparency of uh, legal rulings and legal definitions. I think that's, that's a priority of ours. We have to be more transparent about that. Um, in terms of the scope, uh, the scope is, is, the, is foreign intelligence as defined in uh, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. The actual conduct of the targeting uh, of foreign intelligence for, for foreign intelligence purposes under Section 702 is, is um, subject to a rigorous process. We have something called the National Intelligence Priorities Framework. Sure, but let's just assume that I was communicating with a legitimate, followed all the procedures, foreign intelligence target, not a terrorist, but just someone who knew about the thing, and so my email isn't there. You, no, so no, not targeting me. You're targeting that person. I understand. Why, but, why shouldn't an FBI agent have to get a warrant to read my private message if I'm the one he's interested in and I'm the one he's querying? I'm trying to give. I'm trying to lay the foundation for my. True, answer. true. But we only, we're <laughs> going to move through many topics okay. here, so I'm trying to get right to the point. Because we believe that the that the original collection is targeted. So the original collection is targeted at a at a legitimate foreign intelligence target. We're not getting all of your email communications. That's right. We're only getting the email communications of you and this uh, carefully focused foreign intelligence target. And if there is a fast breaking situation where we need to find out whether or not an, uh, a, an American that's been involved potentially in a terrorist incident inside the United States is in communication with somebody that we already have collected on, that's the, uh, that's the rationale. You need, to, you need to move quickly. You need to uh, identify whether we currently hold the communications information that could help us prevent something from happening in the future. Now, but that sounds like you're searching on the name of the terrorist who just committed the attack. You're not searching on the name of the American. Just it could be an American who is involved in some terrorist incident inside the United States, and we want to see if he's getting instructions from abroad. So, and so, so you, do you think the government could live with a warrant requirement as long as there was an exclusion for a fast-moving national security crisis? The government's position has been no on that point. Right. right. I'm just wondering, is there some snappy, like, and because, or is it just because why should we constrain our powers? We've gathered this lawfully. There's never been a... a inhibition on using data that was lawfully gathered, and so no. So it's, it's essentially, 
because you don't, you, you don't know when you might need to get the data quickly. And, and we don't want to constrain the intelligence services from um, being able to do that. From a civil liberties and privacy perspective, I understand the concerns. Mm -hmm. And so we do try to put in place uh, checks and, and policies regarding oversight, documenting these queries, the reason for the queries, um, providing oversight from the Department of Justice and ODNI on the queries, and then reporting any incidents to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. All right. So I understand the concerns. Um, we feel like the current structure is sufficient to address those concerns. Let's move on to the... Can I say something about that? Sure. I mean, there's really, you know, until we know how many of these backdoor searches the FBI conducts and how the volume of information they pull out of this, there's really no way that, you know, that's like an internal assessment. But the, but the public and lawmakers need to know that answer in order to say, like, we like this or we don't like this. You know, it's not just an emergency. And why don't there we are, know the answer of how many? They, well, they, the IC won't tell us, you know, and the intelligence community won't <laughs> tell us they, they won't count. And Congress has asked many times, like, how much American information information is in here, how many backdoor searches are you conduct is the FBI conducting, and they, and, and we don't know. You know, the information is kept, the information they get from the companies, it's kept for five years, um, and it's, there's not, you know, any, there, you know, there's no documented, uh, there's no facts that need to be shown to a judge in order to get it. So it's really, um, it's really um, kind of like taking advantage. My so, yeah, NSA and CIA have counted and are required to count by the USA Freedom Act that we've published those statistics of the number of U.S. person queries they do. So the USA Freedom Act did not require the FBI to do that. Their systems aren't set up for that. We, we understand that that's been a, a request from the Hill as well as from the civil society organizations that we deal with, and FBI is still trying to figure out how to do that. My understanding about why the FBI can't do it is that when you're an agent and you're saying, I'm interested in Charlie Savage, and you put in you do a database search on Charlie Savage, it's a federated search that hits all the databases in the FBI's collection and brings back results as they are. But that means that there's not a, you know, what does that mean? That means every single search by an FBI agent at all times in some ways count as a backdoor search, even if 99.9% .9 of them never bring back anything from the right. place. So it, only, be, so it would be a misleading number. And only a, um, only certain FBI agents are allowed to see the results if it comes from a 702. Without clear. getting permission. Right, you have to get permission to see the result. Do you know if agents have asked permission and never been denied? So we're working to release that. So the, the court, if, if you look at the opinion from uh, on the November 2015, I think it is, the uh, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court opinion on FBI minimization procedures, which mm -hmm. is posted on IC on the record, um, addressed that issue. It, there was an amicus who argued that the FBI query process was inconsistent with the statute, was inconsistent with the Constitution. Um, the court uh, held that it was uh, consistent with the statute and the Constitution, but they decided to order FBI to count the number of times um, it, re it, returned a, a it returned resulted in a non-FI query situation. So. Um, FBI has been implementing that order, and we are. That's one of the things we're working. You're going to try to declassify. Yes. Do, you, do you think that's imminent, like before this administration leaves? I hope so. Yes. And is this going to be all the backdoor searches, or just a sub? No, just the one that the court ordered be, uh, be disclosed. The study. Uh, that, that be the, the study that the court ordered. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the internal architecture of how you have of how the FBI has its systems, but database experts have said it's not a big computer science hurdle to say, um, you know, there were this many queries where data came out of this particular database. Since the 702 data has to be treated in a certain way, it's segregated. Have you seen that data? No, you can't talk about it. I have. Yeah. Well, when it does come out, will people find it surprising? <laughs> I, I won't speculate. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to the world of Executive Order 1233. 
So Executive Order 12333 is the internal executive branch rules for surveillance that is not regulated by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. FISA regulates only collection from a wire on domestic soil where at least one end of the communication is domestic. So it doesn't cover sucking up data from satellite transmissions. It doesn't cover intercepting stuff from fiber optic cables abroad. It doesn't cover foreign to foreign communications intercepted as it transits the United States. Huge swaths of what the NSA does is not covered by FISA. And this has raised increasing, and the reason for that architecture is that it was designed in the, the 70s of, for phone systems in which what happened here stayed here, what happened there stayed there. And of course now in the internet era, just as uh, Jen Daskal was explaining in the last session, stuff that happens here is found there all the time. Stuff that happens there is found here all the time. That's one of the reasons for the, why the FISA Amendments Act allows collection here of foreigners' data without a warrant. A reform that came out of pressures that arose because of the, the rise of the internet. So uh, keep staying with Alex here for a minute. Uh, one of the wrinkles arising out of our greater understanding of 12333 and FISA has been an awareness that uh, agencies have increasingly since 9-11 been engaged in sharing raw data with each other. That is to say, unminimized data, data that has not had privacy protections put on it yet to screen out the names and uh, irrelevant personal details of Americans. Uh, so it used to be that the NSA only would have this or the FBI only would have it and to disseminate that information elsewhere in the government, um, they would have to sort of process it as a, as a protection measure. After 9-11, there was a desire to tear down these barriers. Maybe someone at the CIA would see the clue that would have been redacted because the NSA person didn't know it was a clue. Uh, so we, there was, in the world of FISA, a great effort to share raw data collected under FISA, which now goes, at least it's is known to go to four agencies, the FBI, the CIA, the National Counterterrorism Center, and the NSA. And uh, Bob Litt, uh, general counsel at ODNI, where you work, has talked publicly about uh, how there's also been an effort, which has been lasted eight years now, to develop procedures that will allow data that was collected under 12333 rules also to be shared with the CIA and the FBI. And we don't know what the rules on the, or limits of those things are going to be yet, but this has been in the works for eight years. Bob said in February that it was imminent. Where are those procedures? What's imminent. The, imminent. Imminent is still What's correct. the problem? So you think it's going to happen before this administration leaves, or is it in collapse? No, I think it will. I think we're uh, on the road to getting something finalized and released soon. I mean, obviously, government takes time, but has there been some substantive issue? And if so, what is it that's held it up? It's primarily the government takes time. Um, so just to give the, the, the context for this, under Section 2.3 of Executive Order 12333, it talks about protections for retaining, disseminating, collecting, retaining, and disseminating U.S. person information. And it says that intelligence agencies can share that U.S. person information with each other because everybody has AG guidelines designed to protect that U.S. person information. This, this was a change to the executive order put in in 2008? The change, the change was that um, in 2008 they added a change. So it, from 1981 it said, uh, except for signals intelligence information, cannot be shared. So essentially NSA would retain it until they had decided to disseminate it in a report or something like that. In 2008 the decision was made that uh, for that kinds of kind of signals intelligence information, that could be shared pursuant to procedures established by the DNI 
um, and approved by the Attorney General in coordination with the Secretary of Defense. So that's what you've been talking about has been in the works for a, a, a long number, a, a large number of years. Yeah. Well, it's not like right when we signed, they signed it, we, we you know, went to, we, we attacked 2.3 procedures. But yes, it's been going, as I like to say, at the speed of government. Um, so we are, I think, so the, the basic structure will be that, it, that signals intelligence information uh, can be shared pursuant to um, an elaborate process where there has to be a term, determination at the requesting agency. Um, has everything, has a need for the information, and has put in place structures and processes uh, that essentially will give the protection, uh, the same protection to the information that NSA provides under their rules. So the, the big difference, the big difference between 12.3 surveillance and FISA surveillance, whether it's FISA or FISA Amendments Act, with or without a warrant, is that FISA surveillance has to be targeted. You're looking at one specific person for one specific reason, and then if someone is communicating with that person, okay, you get those communications as well. 12333 surveillance permits bulk collection. Just vacuum up the whole pipe. Because again, it's supposed to be happening abroad, it's supposed to be for foreign intelligence purposes. But as you were saying earlier, when we were talking about the backdoor search loophole in terms of FISA, well, it's not like they would, if they were looking at me, they would get all of my communications. Just the emails I sent or received to that legitimate foreign intelligence target. So that kind of reassuring constraint would not exist if people's information was vacuumed up under 12333 surveillance. Is there, as a, can you tell us, can you preview the big question, which would be, will these procedures let the FBI query US person data for criminal purposes in the, once they get access to 12333 bulk collection? So just, just, to, just to clarify what you're saying about 12333 surveillance, so if we are to, um, uh, do surveillance targeting any American, no matter where in the world, under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, we are required to get an individualized court order. That's right. So we're talking about bulk collection that targets no one and right. gets a million people of whom X So to the extent that, it, that, that the collection is not as, not targeted, so this is where I wanted to step back and talk about the way that we do targeting. I mean, targeting is, is something that is specifically been described for Section 702, but also happens for 12333. So there is, a, 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 there, there is a process by which intelligence agencies go through to identify individual targets. And to the extent that that targeting can happen um, on that basis, that's what happens. So we, if we can get the information individually targeting a, a communication overseas, that's what happens. Under Presidential Policy Directive 28, um, the, uh, we put in place a process for uh, limiting the use of information that's collected in bulk um, and basically there we're saying we have to tailor our collection to the extent feasible. If it's not feasible to, to tailor the collection and still obtain the national security information, we can do things in bulk. For U.S. person information, NSA still operates under USID 18, uh, which is their implementation of the detailed requirements of Executive 12333 for SIGINT. And under that, uh, use, uh, that United States Signals Intelligence Directive, they're supposed to also narrow as much as they can um, when they think that there's going to be significant amounts of U.S. person information involved. So there is a, there is a narrowing. Under USID 18, NSA, if they're going to do a query of a U.S. person, they must get attorney general approval based on probable cause. So right. there is a specific limitation for querying. And remember, I, I won't comment specifically on one agency or another, but broadly speaking, what we're doing with the 2.3 procedures is trying to make the Replicate. other agencies' uh, protections comparable well, I, to that. I, I think I did hear you say something that was uh, it also went directly to what I was saying, which was under PPD 20, under the presidential policy directive that handles bulk collection, 
it's only permitted to be used for one of these six purposes. Right. And some of those purposes may be criminal, but they're criminal at a super national level. Right. They're not like, not like this guy's a tax cheat. Let's see if right. we have some of this information. Right. Okay, let me turn back we to... Have, we have a... 20 minutes. All right, well, let me turn back to Jennifer. Uh, do you want to critique anything he said about 12333 or issue spot, something that Congress A, a couple do? of things. I mean, I think one of the things that's really of concern here is what we already know about targets gives us great pause, right? Because, uh, you know, targets can be, you know, we're thinking, I think a lot of people think about targeting as a particular bad guy. But targets can be the French government or targets can be, and, and we've seen, you know, documents from Snowden targets are um, doctors without borders. Um, we've seen even, uh, so, so, you know, our organizations that operate internationally that are not American organizations can be targeted just for foreign intelligence purposes. And lots do, of do people... Do you think that's illegitimate? Um, Why is it illegitimate? I think that, it, I think that it, what it ends up doing is it ends up collecting a lot of American information because Americans and others, innocent people who are not really of foreign intelligence information, uh, foreign intelligence interest, end up being part of the take there. And the rules we have don't adequately protect people when the targets are of that nature because the collections ends up being so broad. Um, and so, you know, I think we have a lot of reasons, you know, even under Title I FISA where you need to show probable cause that somebody is an agent of a foreign power. We've seen that the heads of prominent groups like CARE um, have been tar FISA Title I targets for which there's supposedly probable cause. So there's a lot of reason to be concerned about the way that targeting is happening now. But, but I think one of the things to be extra concerned about is that we are about to have a change in administration. And these rules are executive branch formulated rules. So executive orders can be changed. They don't require you to go to Congress. And executive orders can be kept secret. Um, targeting provisions needs, we didn't know what they were until uh, Snowden leaked them, uh, but they need, the targeting provisions is for uh, 702 and for regular FISA have to go to the FISA court, but the FISA court's ability to oversee it is statutorily um, limited. Let and me, so we have me, this problem that these quickly, things could be changed. Let me ask before we turn to looking forward, because I do want to get to that. In the okay. Let's stick with the theme of foreign, I mean, Part of your critique is, well, a lot of American stuff gets sucked in as well. But this is also sort of a nationalistic frame. Like, we care if our stuff is collected, but maybe we don't if someone else's stuff is collected. But can, let's, let's drop that frame for a moment and think about it from a more sort of global human rights perspective. Non-citizens, non-Americans abroad have, think they have privacy rights, even if it doesn't come from our Constitution, uh, from in, a, in a moral sense at least. Can you talk a little, we, we mentioned earlier PPD 28, Presidential Policy Directive 28. For people who aren't familiar, can you lay out the groundwork of what that was and sort of yeah. what it means, not from an American perspective, but from a global perspective? Yeah, so after the Snowden revelations, as I said, there was this international outcry um, from people who uh, were not Americans who were beginning to get a sense of the scope of US surveillance directed at them or opportunistically gathering their data. Mm -hmm. So one of the post-Snowden reforms, um, and many people feel that this is like a major um, positive result of the disclosures, was PPD 28, so Presidential Policy 
Policy Directive, and it does a couple of things. One thing it does is it limits the uses to which you can put collected signals intelligence, bulk signals intelligence, to these Alex, six major about. categories that what are, are some important. Examples of those categories: counterterrorism, weapons proliferation. Um, so the big stuff, Super right? Big stuff. Yeah, uh, you know, and there still remains this question of what does it mean in bulk? Because if your target is Yemen, is that and, and you collect everything you can that comes in or out of or inside of Yemen, is that bulk or is that targeted and the target is Yemen? So there's still some questions about how that's interpreted that we don't know and, and what that really means. Um, but it does say to people, if your stuff is opportunistically collected in this way, we're only going to use it for these big national security things and not just for anything. And why is that considered such a big deal? What, what, was, what was unprecedented about PPD-28? Well, before PPD-28, that information that was collected in bulk about non-Americans could be used for whatever. There was no sense in the U.S. government that non-Americans had privacy interests <laughs> that needed to be protected by rule. Yeah, and not just privacy interests, but also you know free expression interests, the right to gather, you know, to gather politically, freedom of religion. The, so all of these other interests that statutorily may have been protected or or policy-wise may have been protected for Americans, there was nothing for for foreigners. So this was an an effort to say to the to to foreigners, um, you know, if we use your stuff, then it's going to be for a good reason. Right. Or if we get your stuff. Right. Yeah. And yeah. let me turn to Alex. You, you, you live in this world. Right. We've been under PPD-28 for almost two years now. Do you detect disgruntlement? Like in, in the world of drones, I know that the, the agency and the military chafes under the presidential policy guidance that limits their ability to fire outside of hot battlefields, and there's been a lot of sort of wanting to get out from under that. Do you, I don't know actually the answer to this. Does PPD-28 impose such you, constraint? Do you know the answer to the other questions you've been asking? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know. Well, maybe. <laughs> uh, do, does, does the surveillance community chafe under PPD-28, or are the, the six categories broad enough that basically it's fine? So I, I want to make clear that it's, it's more than just the bulk collection. So there's 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 th uh, there are two other critical sections to PPD right. 28. So there's safeguarding personal information. Mm -hmm. So information that is um, uh, the, the the basic without getting into the details. So the basic directive there is that agencies have to apply comparable protections uh, when they retain and disseminate non-U.S. person information as they would to U.S. person information. Right. And we have to put in place policies and procedures to make that happen. We have published those policies and procedures. Um, and then there's another one that requires policymakers to be involved in the signals intelligence decision-making process to make sure that we are taking into account all the risks that are involved with this, um, foreign relations with foreign governments, privacy risks, um, other similar kinds of risks that um, uh, previously uh, were not part of this formal structured review. And there's a- If you're gonna target Angela Merkel's phone, cell phone, talk without to someone in the White House. on any right. particular target, yes. Right. The, the, Don't just do it at a low right. level. And that's, that's the, as part of that review process, we would expect to see human rights organizations become, you know, come up in terms of that, that would be something that we would weigh in on as, as being a problem if that were to, to uh, come up as, for example, uh, something that might be targeted. And we've talked to human rights organizations about um, what our, general views are on that. On so, that. so have you seen but, uh, any signs of friction, or is this, uh, it's fine, it's internalized and the world I think the any intelligence on. service around the world, um, the, the natural way to constrain an intelligence service if you're a democracy, the main concern is that the intelligence service not turn its focus inward. So that's why Jennifer and her colleagues and others have always been focused on what are we doing uh, with these powerful tools and authorities 
regarding our own citizenry and our own democratic process? Are we interfering somehow with the functioning of our democracy? And one of the lessons we learned from the Church and Pike Committee hearings in the 1970s was it's important to stay turned outward. Right. So uh, the culture in the intelligence community has always been, well, you know, be very careful with what you're doing in the United States. Be very careful with anything to do with U.S. persons. Make sure you're focusing outward on foreign intelligence, you know, to collect foreign intelligence information, unless you fit, you know, one of these narrow categories or constraints and go through all these legal procedures. So I do think it was... Um, uh, to some degree, a, a, a change in, in thinking to say now, while you're turning your, your view outward, these protections that we put in place for U.S. persons, for all the reasons I just said as lessons from the Church and Pike Committee hearings, we also now have to start thinking about applying that to everybody, regardless of nationality. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, that has been a change. Uh, at the same time, it hasn't been um, uh, you know, if you read how, how it's written and how we try to design it, we try to design it so that it fits within the natural course of business for intelligence uh, services, so it's nothing that they would view as you know, extraordinarily burdensome or anything like that. I think it's working. More of a codification of best practices. To some degree, yeah. yeah. I mean, some of it, of course, is new, but um, I think it's working very well myself. Okay. One last question on the topic of foreigners. Uh, you know, one of the great dilemmas, and this also reflects what uh, Jen Daskal was just talking about, is that on the internet, data is everywhere, but uh, law regulating data uh, happens on specific chunks of the planet, which may have different regimes that conflict with each other, um, there's, which then raises dilemmas when you have even robust democracies that share the same values but have different rules trying to share data with each other across international lines where one system doesn't line up well with the other one. So there was a great effort this year uh, and a deal was struck with the European Union to try to resolve this issue called Privacy Shield. What's the sort of one-minute takeaway of what that does and why it's important? So the European Union has a data protection regime, um, and under that regime, they, have, they regulate the data flows that leave the European Union member states to other countries. And basically, it requires that the other country have adequate uh, protections for privacy that are essentially comparable to what the European Union data protection regulation requires. Um, since 2000, the United States have negotiated an arrangement with the European Union so that American companies could bring data out of Europe into the United States. It was called the safe harbor. Um, more recently, the European Court of Justice took a look at what the European Commission had negotiated in 2000 for the safe harbor and found it uh, wanting and basically overturned it, requiring the European Commission to re-enter into a review and discussion period with the United States government to come up with some arrangement for the companies to bring data into the United States um, by adhering to some uh, sort of best practice principles that are all outlined in what is now called the privacy shield. So that, that's, in a nutshell, what that's about. We, we lean forward in providing information and meeting with uh, European Union negotiators. One thing I think is important to understand is European Union, very complicated situation. There are 28 member states for now, right? Um, and um, those member states, when they formed the European Union in the, in the underlying treaties, it, um, retained for themselves authority over their own national security. So the European Union privacy rules do not apply um, uh, straight, do not, do not directly apply to the member states' national security activities. So what you see going on within the European Union member states, they each have their own way of doing intelligence oversight and of restricting their signals intelligence activities. Um, or not. And, and, or not. And there are, there, are, there are points of comparison between what we do and what they do. 
Um, that was not part of the discussion. I mean, that was not part of the privacy shield. The privacy shield is really um, us explaining to them our uh, protections under our, under our various instruments. And, um, um, uh, and, and of course, the Department of Commerce had a whole bunch of other um, documents as part of their package. All right. So, so can I say yeah, a, a, something about privacy? So, you know, one of the issues that civil libertarians have under 12333 collection is why do I, why should I as an American get less, uh, less civil liberties if my data is overseas? And one of the issues that Europeans have connected with the privacy shield is why is my data um, subject to warrantless wiretapping um, under Section 702 when I do business with these internet giants that are all located here in the US. And the reason why the safe harbor was uh, struck down was because the uh, European Court of Justice, the CJEU, uh, said that Section 702 does not comply with European standards or human rights law because it allows this warrantless collection of Europeans' data for these broad foreign intelligence reasons and that that is not necessary and appropriate um, under their law. And so it was struck down and now negotiators have come up with the privacy shield. And the privacy shield itself will be reviewed by the CJEU and the CJEU will make a decision as to whether it fixes the problem. And I think that if you take a look at the privacy shield, it's very clear, and you read the decision that the CJEU issued in the Schrems case, um, it's very clear that there's a mismatch there. Because the privacy shield has all of these additional procedural things about where somebody who um, happens to learn that they are aggrieved by having their information mishandled can go through this ombudsman process and that kind of thing. But if the court was serious that the problem is the standard for accessing Europeans' data under 702 falls short of European and human rights standards, Privacy Shield does nothing to address that. And I think that's something also that we need to consider in the upcoming Section 702 fight. It is very important that we be able to have these data exchanges because lots of American companies' customers come from the EU and we use services in the EU, so we need to have this trade. A lot of people depend on it. But if the CJU takes its, itself, its own opinion seriously, it will strike down Privacy Shield. And it will be saying, basically, you need to give European citizens some substantive assurance that they will not be warrantlessly wiretapped without good cause beyond just the United States had a foreign intelligence interest in it. Mm -hmm. So we have about five or six minutes left. We will have time for a question or two. So be thinking about what you want to do. You have to put your hand up, and I think a microphone will be brought to you. Lightning round for us here before we go into that. Uh, looking forward to a Trump administration, assuming you stay in your position now and for a third presidency, a fifth director of national intelligence, what are you going to be watching for uh, in the first year? Well, I, um, I, think, I think with any new administration, there's a period of time where they're going to need to you know, understand and learn what it is that we do and the value that we add and uh, how we conduct ourselves. I think that a lot of the changes we've uh, been talking about here um, do have enduring value. The reason we put these changes in place, the reason we're doing the things we're doing now is because of the conditions uh, of the global environment, public expectations, uh, and those aren't going to change, those aren't going to go away. And in order for us to be effective, I think we have to be committed to the kinds of transparency initiatives that we've been talking about. Um, to engaging with folks here and with civil society more generally and, and our friends in Europe to understand their concerns and see how we can best address those concerns. So I think um, the kinds of things that we've been talking about are, are really part of the ethic and culture of what it means to be an effective intelligence professional. 
and that is going to uh, remain the case regardless of administration. So the, the national security deep state will endure. And sometimes that might be happy from a libertarian perspective. Uh, it, I don't know so what you mean by the national security deep state. I'm the permanent civil service bureaucracy of national security mm -hmm. professionals who have embodied these oh, I see. learned values, which may include we should be more transparent. So right. among I think unknown so things that people don't like as well. Right. So we've we've published two separate sets of principles that I think embody um, what what I think we are as an intelligence community. One is the principles of professional ethics. Those came out in 2012. They talk about lawfulness, mission, truth, integrity. Uh, diversity, stewardship, um, so it's excellence. So these are these are core principles that I think embody who we are as intelligence professionals. And then, of course, the principles of intelligence transparency, which I just think are um, is is just a, a fact of life these days. You have to find ways to be, be engaging with um, the public on these issues. In in thirty seconds, <laughs> what are you thinking about with Trump? Um, FISA was passed in nineteen seventy six. Um, the transparency, 1978, the transparency stuff that Alex has been working on is something that's happened over the past, you know, couple of years. If you look at the history of intelligence surveillance, it is a history of political abuse. Um, what you see is all there is, but that's not actually true. Our experience is in this moment in time, right? But if the story of surveillance is the story of its, of its, of overcollection and political abuse. And so I think, I'm not optimistic that you know, things aren't going to change. Um, we've had problems, but those problems could get a lot worse. And one of the biggest problems we have is the amount of, uh, and the kind of things we rely on for accountability and for fairness that are discretionary within the executive branch and secret. And as long as we're relying on discretionary and secret things to protect our rights, we're in a hell of a lot of trouble under the Trump administration. All right, who has a question? And I'll let the people with the microphones pick who to, who to select. Thank you. Uh, Gareth Porter, independent investigative journalist. Um, I'd like to pose the, uh, the question or the problem of incentives that are built into... Can you speak a little closer to the microphone? Sorry. Uh, yes. Uh, I'd like to pose the question of incentives built into the problem of accountability and transparency uh, and all the other values that have been discussed here. Uh, the assumption implicitly so far, and I'm not being critical, has been that the CIA and the NSA are essentially uh, inherently disinterested parties. Uh, the reality, I would suggest, is that there are two incentives built in to the problem that, uh, that uh, perhaps uh, disturb that picture. One is the, the fact that uh, there's, there's a power equation here, that more bulk uh, collection of intelligence that Im impinges on, on personal freedoms and so forth gives greater power to high-ranking officials in but the what's your question, sir? And the other one is a potential conflict of interest in terms of profit. We know that senior officials of the CIA and NSA uh, particularly in the CIA, have gone back and forth between their public positions uh, and private concerns, which have interests in particularly technology. All right, so I'm going to have to cut you off. But do you have a question? The, the question is, is, is it not the case that there is a conflict of interest here uh, built into the situation where senior officials uh, have an interest in technology which does tend 
to be, in fact, uh, collecting bulk. Uh, uh, All right, so is there a conflict of interest with uh, senior surveillance officials also who then go to the private sector and want to have a more uh, spending and power on surveillance? No, I haven't, I haven't seen any hint of that myself. I mean, I think uh, the people that I've been dealing with are very focused on mission, and, and that's a critical part of what they do and why they come to work and put up with as much of the stuff that we put up with. Um, okay. So I, ha I have not myself seen any evidence of that. One last question from anyone else? Thank you, I appreciate the uh, information. My name's Don Allison, and uh, one question I do have is I've been hearing all day how the FISA court is essentially the oversight on what is taking place inside the collections. Um, do you, as a purely personal opinion, think that the judges who comprise the FISA court have a level of understanding of the technology and the methods that allow them to make a fair decision on what is being done? That's a good, succinct question. You're a lawyer and a technologist. <laughs> Do the judges on the FISA court, are they qualified even to understand what they're looking at? You know, this is one of the problems. The one, one thing is we don't know. Um, we don't see their opinions. We don't, the court hearings aren't open. Um, the, some of the technology that's being used is very uh, complicated. But we, from the stuff we see, we see that the FISA court has misunderstood or um, you know, misapprehended programs that it approved. So in 2011, uh, eventually we saw this opinion. There was a, 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 about 702. The court was surprised to learn that the way that the government was conducting the collection ended up grabbing wholly irrelevant communications as well as some domestic communications which were about the foreign intelligence selector, and the court hadn't known that before. Its understanding of the program was different. And in fact, the program was so complicated that people inside the government, even once they learned that this was the case, had never told the people who knew that they needed to tell the FISA court. Um, we also have seen some FISA court opinions that just as a purely legal matter are really subpar in terms of legal reasoning. So, you know, and we've seen ways in which the FISA court has approved things without even bothering to write an opinion or explain its uh, decision making. So, the, you know, the FISA court is of real concern, and that's one of the reasons why I think in USA Freedom there was the provision for a, a, a legal advocate before the court, but I think one of the reforms that people are pressing for is to not only provide a alternative um, legal argument for the court so that it can really kind of consider the issues better, but also to provide technological expertise so the court can consider this, because so much of what ends up happening in surveillance is technology dependent. Can I quickly defend yes. the court? So I think, that, so the court is consists, consists of 11 uh, federal district court judges. They serve on a rotating basis. In my experience, they take their job extremely seriously. We have published a number of their opinions, and we're looking to publish additional ones. Uh, they do hold the government to account, and uh, they have been, they have appointed amicuses, the amici. They have appointed legal advisors, and we've released um, some of that already. So uh, are, is each individual fully conversant with technology? I, I can't speak to that. I mean, we're, technology moves very quickly. It's very complicated. It's very hard to keep up with. Even for a technology legal a technology advisor, that person would have a bunch of stuff to keep up with. But they take their jobs very seriously, and they perform their duties professionally, in my opinion. All right. Well, we are out of time. So thank you both very much for uh, having this wide-ranging discussion. And uh, I hope that you enjoyed your broader day here at the Cato Surveillance Conference. We'll turn it back over to Julian here to send us to the, uh, to the exits. So much to uh, to Charlie and our discussants. Uh, our uh, our final uh, speaker uh, before we release you to uh, uh, 
the world and uh, and or a happy hour uh, and some drinks uh, is is sort of the Doctor Who of uh, of intelligence or surveillance law, at least digital surveillance law, in that if you kind of look over the sweep of history uh, at all these sort of crisis points, at all these pivotal moments, somehow mysteriously he's there. You know, it's like the doctor showing up in the old photo from the Titanic and then the Battle of Bull Run. Uh, he was uh, there at the Justice Department as a prosecutor in the 90s as uh, uh, the courts were beginning to tame the Wild West of, uh, of cyberspace by uh, interpreting uh, law in, uh, in this new domain. Uh, in 2008, when the sort of predecessor of the uh, FISA Amendments Act in Section 702 uh, forced Yahoo to uh, begin turning over uh, information about its clients in response to what some might call general warrants, uh, Mark was there um, and, and indeed remains, as far as we know, the only private attorney to actually argue uh, in front of the uh, very secretive uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. And then most recently, uh, when FBI and uh, Apple got into a tussle over uh, their attempt to compel the company to provide access to uh, encrypted uh, iPhone drives, uh, once again, Mark was there and, and was indeed called Apple's secret weapon, uh, an excellent profile in, in The Guardian. Uh, he is, uh, again, uh, very much like Doctor Who, someone we're glad has been uh, at all of these points, win or lose. Um, he's uh, the founder of Zwilgen and uh, uh, a generally interesting character with a, a fascinating perspective who uh, now, going forward, will uh, continue in front of the uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court as one of the amici uh, created by the USA Freedom Act to provide an external perspective before the court. Please join me in welcoming Mark Zwillinger. Thanks, Julian. I really appreciate the Doctor Who reference. I was afraid you were going to go with the Forrest Gump reference and peering in all the old pictures. Um, no, thank you for having me here. It's been uh, an interesting day. Uh, it's been interesting to talk about surveillance issues through the prism of the upcoming Trump administration, and that is an intentional prism pun. Um, but, but I'm glad I'm, I'm delivering closing remarks because there are many people in this room that I want to thank and people who are watching that I want to thank who have worked hard to make sure that our nation's intelligence gathering program follows the rule of law. And this is an effort that's going to be even more important in the upcoming years. Like many of the speakers before me, my remarks are totally in my individual capacity. I'm not speaking on behalf of any technology clients. I'm not speaking on behalf of the amicus group at the FISA court. Um, and so there are some restrictions on what I can discuss, but I will try to do as the best I can. Um, for those of you who weren't paying attention to Julian's uh, detailed introduction, um, in the last eight years, I've argued in front of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review twice. The first time was defending the, uh, representing Yahoo and attacking the constitutionality of the Protect America Act, which was the precursor to 702. The second time was earlier this year. Uh, the first amicus appointed before the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review. I was challenging the constitutionality of the capturing of post-cut-through dial digits, the digits that you dial after a phone call is completed, either to make a second call or to enter in some banking information or personal information, and the government was collecting that under the authority of a pen register statute, and I was challenging that. Um, as Julian said, no one else has argued in front of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review, so um, the bad news is, of course, I'm 0-2, the good news is no one can claim a better record. So, um, 
But I've done other things, as uh, Julian pointed out. I filed litigation in the FISC, arguing for transparency uh, and reporting on national security process. I've challenged uh, gag orders in the District of Maryland uh, for providers who've had NSLs and wanted to talk about them. And, and my declassified arguments are not the only times I've fought with the government in secret. The Apple cases were really about efforts to make sure that providers and device manufacturers aren't going to become agents of the government in helping turn people's devices against them. And that's something I'm very worried about happening over the course of the next four years. But I want to start with you know, a positive note, which is that the vast majority of the work that I do for my provider clients is behind the scenes. It's not fighting with the government in the courts but it's counseling clients on how to match up the complicated provisions of the Electronic Communications Privacy Act or the FISA statute or NSLs or 702s and match the data they have with the type of process that the government needs to get it. Um, on this work, I represent literally dozens of providers. Um, and this is crucial work. It's not high profile. It's not um, things you read about in the paper. But um, the vast majority of the process the government is serving is routine process. They're serving it correctly. It's not controversial. It calls for proper data. But the providers need to understand exactly what data they can give back when they receive the search warrants, when they receive pen register orders. And the FBI does not do a good job of explaining it. And the FBI doesn't come in and say, oh, by the way, here are your options in challenging this if you want to challenge it. Uh, except where they're required to do it under the statute for NSLs. And so the bulk of my work in, the career, in my career has been figuring out exactly what the government is entitled to get and helping providers um, uh, give it to them. The, the reason I mention this is for balance. Um, the, the providers serve as, a, as gatekeepers for a wealth of consumer data. And it's imperative that both the government follow their procedures in order to get data and the providers follow proper process in disclosing it. And this ties in uh, a lot to what Julian asked me to address today. He said, talk a little bit about why you've spent so much of your career working on these cases. Why have you made privacy, uh, and consumer, uh, privacy and security of consumer data a centerpiece of your law practice? And why did you build Zwilgen um, and have 25 lawyers who deal with it? And it's a good question because you don't stop and think about it every day when you're doing it. And the simple answer, and it's probably the answer for most people in this room, is we all want to do something that matters. And I've always thought this mattered. And I still believe that. And I believe that more today, even than I did maybe one month ago. Because being a gatekeeper for consumer data for technology companies is somewhat ironic for me to play that role. I, I started my career as a prosecutor at the Department of Justice. And I spent a lot of time teaching FBI agents exactly how to gather electronic evidence and how to use the existing authorities in the telephone world to get the data that was available in the internet world. And what I saw was that there were very few lawyers that the ISPs and internet companies could turn to to get advice, either when their systems were hacked or when they were asked to turn over data. There were many lawyers on the government side trying to figure out how to get it, but there were very few advising them uh, what to do when they received these requests. For a brief aside that I've never told people, this part of my practice really started in 2002. I had met a lawyer from Yahoo at a conference at the US Sentencing Commission. And I said to her, if you ever need advice on figuring out what to do when the government comes calling, let me know. And about six months later, uh, two hours after my son was born, while I was at Sibley Hospital, she gave me a call. And she said, the Yahoo is being 
and I'll, I'll describe it in my own terms, but essentially bullied by the federal government in a child pornography case, the very kind of case that the companies really want no part of and most lawyers want to stay away from. And in this case, the FBI had submitted an affidavit that turned out to be false as to what type of material all the members of the Yahoo group got when they joined the group. And a lot of prosecutions and convictions were, uh, prosecutions and um, uh, guilty pleas had been based on this affidavit. And Yahoo was trying to help the government get it right. That is, figure out exactly what information people did get. But the government didn't really want to listen. Um, they didn't want to listen because it could jeopardize the guilty pleas that already happened. Um, they didn't want to listen because, in part, they didn't believe Yahoo because they believed their FBI agent. Um, so Yahoo turned to me for help. And the government was powerful, right? And the consequences of this fight, helping potential child pornographers avoid conviction, wasn't a welcome consequence. But for them, the truth was important. And standing up to the bullying of the government, even though it was a very difficult place for any company to be, fighting with the US government usually is, especially in a way that can end up freeing bad people, is difficult. Um, but they wanted to have that fight. And that's how I got started. Um, in realizing that the government was taking some liberties in what they were doing in order to secure convictions on the internet. And that wasn't the DOJ that I had been a part of. Okay, so with that personal bio, um, what is it like now? Um, it's still difficult to be in the center of these fights. In any given week, my clients can be criticized for not helping the government, even though doing so would be an extraordinary measure, in the San Bernardino case, for example, to weaken the security of their systems and devices merely because the government wants to look under every rock when there's no real expectation of finding something. Um, or they could be criticized for helping the government too much, like Yahoo was recently in a case involving fairly imminent threat of serious harm when Yahoo was being asked to do something that they didn't feel would undermine the privacy of legitimate users in the same way. And when clients do fight, when providers do challenge these orders, um, they're often not able to talk about it. So again, in the Yahoo example, I wasn't able to talk about the fight, and certainly Yahoo wasn't able to talk about the fight they had in the FISA court in 2008 until after 2013, after the disclosures from Snowden. Um, and they were being unfairly criticized for having rolled over and given the government access to all the data on their systems when nothing could be further from the truth. They had fought you know, at every level to avoid doing so. So it's no wonder that tech providers, tech companies think of this as a no-win area of operations for them. So with that background and with the things that I've done and seen, and as we close today's conference, I thought I would talk for a few minutes about the things that I'm most hopeful about and most worried about for the next four years on surveillance law and policy. Um, I'll start with what I'm most hopeful about because it's shorter. <laughs> uh, in the years after the Snowden disclosures, we have made progress on a lot of fronts. Much of it has been with regard to transparency and the procedural aspects of litigating in front of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. In the past, before the passage of USA Freedom, I testified in front of the President's Civil Liberties and Oversight Board that litigating in the FISC was a lot like sending a letter to Santa Claus. You gave a document to somebody, you didn't know what happened to it, you didn't know where it went, something came back, and you never really saw the whole process, you just had to believe it was working. Um, we are in a very different world right now. The process is vastly improved. There's a public docket for the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, and happily this year for the, for the Court of Review. There's access to presidential decisions from the court because of the declassifications from the DNI and the provisions of USA Freedom. When I argued in 2008, there was one decision in Ray Sealed case that had been declassified and published. That was it. 
There were no rules to follow. Now both courts have published rules and procedures. There's physical space for the court to meet. When I argued in 2008, it was a borrowed courtroom in Rhode Island. Now there's a, a court for the FISC and FISCAR. There's a place for amicus to work. There's the ability for the, uh, the group that's uh, been appointed under USA Freedom to do research and, and be there at the court and write briefs. And it's not nearly the, the mysterious process it was before. And of course, there's, there's me and four other people who were appointed, now five, to serve as amicus. And the court is not just sort of tolerating that process, but it's actively using it. And two people were publicly appointed as amicus this year uh, to argue cases in front of the FISC or the, or the Court of Review. There's more transparency because there's reporting now, at least in bans by the service providers, and there are procedures to challenge gag orders on national security letters. So that has been a lot of progress, and it is progress in a consistent direction, and it's progress that's hard to undo because the courts are involved, the judges are involved in the FISA court. And the question was asked before about the judges on the FISA court. And um, there are problems with the judges understanding technology, but they're the same problems that are in, the, in all of the federal judiciary. I argued a class action privacy case in the First Circuit. One of the judges on the panel was Justice Souter, sitting by designation um, in the First Circuit. Uh, not necessarily the draw you want when you're arguing about a case involving video privacy of appointed Supreme Court justices. But um, he doesn't have email. I'm trying to explain to him how an app works and what kind of data an app collects. And he hasn't started using email for professional or maybe even for personal use. So while there are problems with the judges uh, in the federal judiciary generally, I don't think the problems with the FISA court judges are, are, are different or unique. Um, and it's a problem of uh, uh, applying law to technology, and the technology is difficult in some places to understand. So anyway, these are all the positive uh, notes, and I don't attribute it all to um, the Snowden disclosures, but also to the, I attribute it to the quality of people who filled the key roles in the uh, Department of Justice and other, other federal agencies in the last administration. Uh, I do believe people were trying to do the right thing on this transparency side and to make the FISC a, a more... Um, um, I'd say open place and a place where there is another side to be heard. But uh, the change in administration takes me to the four things I'm most worried about, and here they are. One, uh, I think it's possible the time for meaningful, positive surveillance reform may be over. Um, we will effectively have to shift, and the civil society community will have to shift from playing offense to playing good defense. For the past several years, many of us have been working to ensure that there are meaningful checks and balances for the executive branch in carrying out domestic and, to some extent, um, foreign surveillance. And it's been a difficult fight, but we've made progress. But now is when the value of those checks and balances will be tested. And I have to say, I was a little bit satisfied and a little bit disturbed in this morning's session to hear my old adversary, Matt Olson, say that when he was in the government, he couldn't imagine the government ever being led by a President Trump. And he suggested that had he been able to imagine it, he might have viewed the issue of executive branch discretion a little bit differently. I was satisfied because he had come around to what I had been always saying, but I was disappointed with his failure of imagination. It should not have been that hard to fathom. Um, President Nixon was not that long ago. Um, how soon we forget, and, and those failures of imagination can be costly. And we're going to find out in the next four years how costly they were, whether we um, got enough reform such that the key institutions that we put into place will save us from really bad outcomes over the next four years, or whether we're left in a position where uh, the appointment of a few Trump loyalists in key government positions, specifically in the general counsel ranks, will remove the discretion, uh, will remove the checks and balances that we got and return us to uh, 
an area of unfettered executive discretion. So I don't know if we made enough progress, but I'm worried that we didn't. And I'm worried that the people who were responsible for us not making that much progress um, wish they could go back and do it differently. Um, which, speaking of which, Carrie Cordero had said this morning, um, and I wanted to comment on this, that it would be a waste of time for the civil liberties community to spend all of its resources fighting 702 reauthorization because it's one of the most regulated areas of government surveillance. And Jennifer Granick in the last panel suggested there's still a fight to be had on 702. Um, I probably agree, and this is unusual, a little more with Carrie on this one. Um, the civil liberties community, the civil society community has to pivot and change its focus a bit. Rather than focus on improving places where there's already institutional oversight, like the FISA court, we somewhat have to put our faith in institutions like the FISA court and in judges and in independent appointees who we know will uphold the rule of law. And we have to be more vigilant in the areas where there is unfettered executive discretion, like under 12333. Um, and so we have, to, we have to not, we have to recognize we're not going to get everything we want on 702 reform, but that we're pretty good there and we're uh, in dangerous places elsewhere. That said, I do have some comments about the FISA court, and this is the second thing I'm worried about. There is a growing trend in the FISA court jurisprudence to rely on minimization and use restrictions as the solution for everything. Generally, the court does not see a problem with overcollection as long as minimization and use restrictions follow. Um, the touchstone of all of their decisions seems to be reasonableness, and the case law that is developing suggests that they are not sympathetic to arguments for prior judicial review by a detached and neutral magistrate. So we're effectively in a world of collect everything and figure out the rules for it later. And if the rules are reasonable, it's OK. And I think the job for advocates over the next couple of years is to point out the problems with this approach. Um, collecting and maintaining vast quantities of data that was collected outside the traditional framework of the Fourth Amendment becomes too tempting a resource for the government to dip into whenever they want. And I'm not just talking about the, the backdoor search loophole, but I am talking about that in part. Um, we're building vast collections of data. And when I argued this, the case in 2008, the Solicitor General of the United States stood before the court. And when the court asked what the harm was um, and, and how these people could be affected by surveillance if nothing bad happened to them, the Solicitor General said, that's right. There's no database of incidentally collected information. DOJ is not maintaining a database of incidentally collected information. Whether that was true or not at the time, it's not true now. We know there's a database of a lot of incidentally collected information. There were 94,000 uh, targets of 702 orders in 2015, according to the DNI report. And if each one of those people was talking to 10 people in the United States, which is probably a conservative estimate, there's a million US person communications sitting in the database from one year that the government can query. So this is a job for the civil liberties community more than it is for the companies. The companies are pretty good now and want to fight to make sure that data doesn't leave their doors when it shouldn't. But once it goes out, the further use of that information is not really a fight the companies can and have taken on. And, and they lose the unique standing they have once they've collected it and produced it. So it's for the civil liberties community to focus on. OK, two more things I'm worried about. And then I'll pause for questions. I'm worried that encryption is still being, uh, being viewed as part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Uh, during the Russian hacking of the DNC, when all the plain text emails came out, what didn't we see? We didn't see end-to-end -end secured uh, communications. We didn't see iMessages. We didn't see WhatsApp messages or signal messages. This should be the wake-up call to point out 
that for all the claims that encryption is preventing the government from seeing the important communications between the bad guys, it's actually quite good at securing the communications between the good guys. And that a key message from coming out of these Russian hacks should be that end-to-end -end encryption is actually important to keep our country safe, not just to protect the privacy of communications between individuals, but to keep our country safe, we need secure communications. I'm not sure that's going to be the takeaway, but I think it should be. Um, it really drives home the point that a lot of the technology companies are making, and technologists like Matt Blaze have made, that it's not privacy versus security. It's security versus security. It's just two different types of security. And the way I like to think about this is the difference between cameras and locks. If we know that someone is, is threatening to steal something valuable, we put it behind a locked door and we try to secure it. We don't just send a lot of cameras to watch it. Because all that will do is tell us who took it, but it won't keep it safe. Encryption will keep the communication safe. Yes, we won't have as great visibility. The cameras won't work as well, but it will secure the communications infrastructure. So I think, um, I think the Russian hacks are a real wake-up call for that. Um, and all of the hacks that we've seen show that we're generally failing as a society on the protection side. We're not failing so much on the catch the bad guys side. Um, and so the choice that we're faced with is do we want to have better secured systems that the bad guys can also use and we have to catch them some other way, or do we want to have less secure systems but better visibility? And as I said, as Matt Blaze uh, has said before, we can't really have it both ways. Um, and as my friend Jennifer Granick has pointed out, when people told the last administration that, the administration said, we don't really believe you. There's got to be another way. Um, this is the problem we're going to face over the next four years. The new administration shows a propensity to not believe science at all. They don't believe the science of climate change. They don't believe the forensic evidence of the Russian involvement in the hacking. And they're not likely to believe that building back doors will weaken rather than strengthen our national security. They've shown an, uh, at least an early disdain for evidence-based decision-making. Um, and that makes me very worried. When the society stops listening to its scientists and disregards evidence, it's in trouble. Um, and I hope I, my, my concerns about this are overblown. Finally, I am worried that the government will work to turn the ubiquity of home technology against US citizens. Five years ago, this concern was kind of quaint. It was about whether the government could surreptitiously turn on the microphone or the laptop on our computers and spy on us. And when this question was posed to FBI Director Comey, he said, you know, it's a good idea to put tape over the webcam when it's not in use. As a society, we've moved well past tape over the webcam. You know, our houses are filled with the Internet of Things. We have Nest thermostats and drop cams. We have ring doorbells. We drive connected cars. And if the early sales for Black Friday and Cyber Monday to be, are be, to be believed, everyone's going to have an Amazon Echo or a Google Home or a Cortana device in our house. And the rules on when the government can force providers to activate these devices are just as unclear as the rules were for email and text messages back in 2001 when I left DOJ. So if there's one thing that I intend to personally work on in the next four years, it's working with providers of these technologies to set clear rules on what they will and won't do when they're faced with third-party requests so that our consumer technology is not turned against us as a new vehicle for government surveillance. All right, was that depressing enough? <laughs> let, let, me, let me close then with one kind of final perverse note of hope, and it does go back to this first, uh, first panel of the morning. In the fight that Apple had with the FBI over unlocking phones, a lot of the public sentiment was pretty split. People seemed to think that the US government should be entitled to get whatever it needed with a warrant, 
but understood that it was a problem if a foreign autocratic regime uh, or leader could force Apple to turn data over to them. It was inconceivable, in the words of Wallace Shawn and Princess Bride, um, to most people, except of course to the Europeans, that the US government itself should be locked out of the data for fear that it would use it improperly. But people forget that it was the surveillance abuses of the intelligence apparatus in the United States under President Johnson and Nixon in the late 70s and the findings of the Church Committee that brought about the need for reform in the passage of FISA in the first instance. And, and given the rhetoric of President-elect Trump during the campaign cycle and the position of some of the cabinet appointees, it's no longer a far-fetched notion that U.S. citizens need to be protected from abuse from the U.S. government and not just foreign governments. And that atmospheric difference that you heard in the first panel of the day may end up making somewhat of a difference in the surveillance debate in Congress and in the courts. And for the sake of all the people in this room and for the sake of the rule of law, let's hope so. Thank you.